What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead. Can NVIDIA beat expectations when it reports after the bell tonight? The now trillion-dollar stock will also have big implications for the rest of the market. Is the AI boom cooling at all or not? We'll get all the nitty-gritty as we await this key report. Plus, Charles Schwab scales back its office footprint, just the latest example of tenants signing smaller leases, and Manhattan converting office space to homes. We'll speak with one company that provides financing for some of those rather difficult projects. And kick up your heels, go ahead, lean back, recline, and listen to what the CEO of Lazy Boy is telling us about home shopping trends and the state of the consumer right now. Are they seeing the same weakness plaguing Dick's, Macy's, and Foot Locker or not? We'll talk to CEO Melinda Whittington ahead. But first, the markets. Dom Chu has the numbers and maybe a 1% rally day, Dom. Uh, maybe. And if it does happen for the S&P, Kelly, it would be the first time that we've seen an S&P 500 1% gain going all the way back to June 30th. So this is a rare occurrence, at least in these summer trading months. So the Dow Industrial is up about 147 points, up about one half of 1%. The S&P 500 sits at 44.29, up about 42 points, or almost one full percent right now. Just to give you an idea, generally positive day. Even at the lows of the session, we were up nine points on the S&P, up roughly 46 at the highs of the session. So again, just right below those session highs right now. But all eyes on the NASDAQ Composite Index, currently up about 1.5% to 13,700, up 194 points. And a bulk of this year's 38% gain in the larger cap NASDAQ 100 has been one stock and one stock alone. That's NVIDIA. Artificial intelligence, data centers, the boom around that supercomputing and microchip company, NVIDIA, up about almost another 2% ahead of its earnings later on this afternoon. And just to give you an idea of just how high the stakes are right now, because it is such a bulk of the year-to-date gain so far in the S&P and the NASDAQ, options traders are already pricing in what could be a 10% move up or down in this stock. And just to give you an idea, over the last eight quarters after it reports, it's up or down about 8.5%. So already expecting a slightly more than volatile report on average. So watch NVIDIA shares. And then the consumer focus, as Kelly points out, it's a very mixed picture. But there are softening consumer trends in certain discretionary areas. We're hearing that from the likes of Foot Locker, which cut its guidance for the second time this year on softening consumer demand. Peloton seeing some of those subscription weakness numbers as well. Kohl's, though, generally positive, And Abercrombie & Fitch, thanks to a strategic business shift to accommodate different types of clothing and different demographics, that's up 24%. They raised their full-year guidance. And by the way, Nike is working on what could be a record 10-day losing streak right now. That kind of discretionary trade very much in focus. But Kelly, you got to look at NVIDIA, got to look at the retail trade. It's setting the stage right now. Some traders think NVIDIA, Kelly, is more important than the Fed's symposium out in Jackson Hole later on on Friday. Back over to you. It's certainly going to be a fun, I would call it 48 hours uh, or more here. Dom, thanks very much. We appreciate it. 10-day slide for Nike. That's so 
fascinating. All right, since we have so many earnings movers lately, that's exactly where we're going to begin today with our earnings exchange. Let's get the trades on NVIDIA and a couple other names about to report. Our trader today is Decatur Capital CEO Degas Wright. Degas, it's great to have you here. Welcome. We're going to save NVIDIA for last, and we're going to actually start with Dollar Tree today, which is having another bad month after that dismal earnings report back in May, although shares are about flat on the year. They aren't immune to those shrink or theft problems plaguing other retailers. They also have to grapple with consumers opting for lower margin staples over discretionary goods. And thanks to inflation, they've had to hike dollar goods to $1.25 and add some higher price items. Degas, would you be a buyer here? Yeah, so, you know, with NVIDIA, what we're seeing is that we've been owners of NVIDIA since uh, 2017. And so, you know, we got in at, at $73 and now we see a 400% gain. So we are holders of NVIDIA and we would actually be buying NVIDIA because as we look at our models, we're seeing that this is actually still in the buy range of what we look at for overall forward performance. And so that's why we really like NVIDIA, even at these heightened valuation levels. Let me circle back to that in just a second. If I may, while we're on the topic of Dollar Tree, I know that's probably not, you know, in the forefront of your mind right now, but are shares of Dollar Tree one that you think could be a compelling investment right now, or would you stay away? So with Dollar Tree, this is really more of a turnaround story. As you know, Mattel Ridge uh, hedge fund actually purchased about 10% ownership into uh, Dollar Tree. So this is still a turnaround story because they are really increasing their investment in four major areas. One is uh, increasing the wage and benefits of their employees. They're also increasing the supply chain and they're doing major repairs and maintenance on the stores. And lastly, they're they're improving the technology around all their systems. So this still may be a little bit too early to get into Dollar Tree, but we would say that let's get past the print and let's see how they do because the economy, the overall impact on their on the earnings and revenue can still be impacted by four things. The economy, obviously their customers may be more impacted with the economy, uh, individuals with limited incomes. Also, the cost of the turnaround has a major impact on their ongoing costs, and that still may be a headwind. Mm-hmm. And then lastly, we're, we saw that with Dollar General, their main competitors, in June, they actually missed on earnings, and that had a significant drawdown on the company. So those are some things that we're concerned about with Dollar Tree. Sure. All right. Maybe Mantle Ridge can help them for the long run, but you're staying cautious for now. Let me ask you about Splunk, which is a little bit of a teaser for AI as well. The shares are up 14% this year, although down 9% in the past month. Um, The company is also touting its AI uh, implementation, but it's unclear just how many companies are looking to jump on that right now, and its expenses are high. I think we're going to have the CEO here tomorrow, Degas. What do you think about owning these shares right now? Yeah, so Spunk is a company that what we're seeing right now is that we evaluate this company as really more a market perform. We're not looking for Spunk at this, these levels to outperform the market. And so we would not be buyers because it doesn't meet our buying criteria. And so we, what we're seeing, though, is that it does have top quintile profitability. But also there's an issue around will they be able to continue the growth in their annual reoccurring revenue? And that's a concern because what we would like to see in the print is that they are talking about a 10 percent 
annual recurring revenue growth. And we don't know if that's going to happen. If that does not happen, we could see a, a major decline in the stock after the print. So that's why we're very concerned about Spunk at these levels. All right. And we will see uh, about that. Not only the results, as we mentioned, we have an exclusive with the CEO here tomorrow. We can talk a whole lot more about that. Gary Steele will be joining the program, Degas. And you mentioned this off the top, but I just want to circle back to it with NVIDIA. Um, you say this is a, a hold right now? Do you, you want to chase, chase this one into the numbers? Or do you think expectations are way too high? Yeah, so once again, now we, we've been holders, we're long-term holders. So for the new investor looking at this, one thing they have to be concerned about is the valuation. Now the valuation and our models indicate that this is uh, really about below average for valuation because it has a earnings yield of about 0.4%. So we're concerned about valuation for new investors. But if you're gonna be a long-term investor, and can uh, really deal with the volatility that NVIDIA may have at times, this is still a good time to buy. So we are, once again, long-term buyers. All right, Degas, thank you very much. I appreciate your time today kicking things off with us. Degas Wright, Indicator Capital Management. Sticking with NVIDIA, those shares and the rest of the so-called Magnificent Seven are mounting a comeback after underperforming the market to start the month and even in the face of surging interest rates. Deirdre Bosa is here with the details in today's Tech Check. Hi, Deirdre. Kelly, so I want to show our audience this graphic from Gardner because I found it really helpful. We spent a lot of time this year talking about the AI hype cycle. This charts the different phases for new technologies at large. Now, first, you have an innovation trigger, like when ChatGPT went into consumers' hands, and that set off a flurry of different applications. The next is a peak in inflated expectations, and here is where you will see generative AI at the very top. It's small, but it's right there. NVIDIA, of course, is leading that charge. It's the only company with financials that are currently benefiting from this shift. But this is also a precarious place to be, as you can see, because the next phase here is the trough of disillusionment before coming back down to reality and ultimately building back up to what Gardner calls a plateau of productivity, but doesn't again reach those heights. That kind of nicely tells tells the audience where we are ahead of NVIDIA's report tonight. Expectations, they are sky high. They're near or at that peak. If guidance delivers, and really it's all about guidance, that will tell investors that there's more to be wrung out at this stage. And it could help bring some momentum back to the other AI plays like Microsoft and Google, the Magnificent Seven, which have taken a breather over the past few weeks. A disappointment, though, Kelly, that could, of course, push generative AI into the next phase a trough and bring the broader markets with it because, as we have talked about a lot, NVIDIA, the Magnificent Seven, AI has been underpinning them and they have been leading the markets higher this year. Yeah, although ChatGPT usage, I think, has leveled off a little this summer. We'll see if the autumn brings another spike. And I don't know how in history you can ever top raising your guidance from 8 to $11 billion <laughs> for the next quarter. I mean, that justifies the stock price to me. How they repeat that, I don't know if that's repeatable. That's that's the question, right? Can lightning strike twice? But I mean, you hear the narrative around this platform shift, certainly here in Silicon Valley and San Francisco, how this is, you know, bigger than the mobile shift, bigger than the desktop shift, bigger than the Internet itself. I don't know. Maybe you can see that. But um, I am with you. The expectations are so high. But then again, we're saying similar things. How could they reach expectations last quarter? And they just blew them out of they the did. water. It was so interesting. Everyone was talking about how expensive NVIDIA was as a stock. But all of a sudden, after that guidance, the next day, the multiple was lower because 
about exactly. blow up number. No, and even <laughs> at 50 times, I can't say that I look at that and go, oh, you know, I mean, it still seems for the kind of growth they're able to put up, it still seems not totally insane. Deirdre, yeah. thank you for now. We appreciate it. Our Deirdre Bosa continuing to follow this for us. Meantime, ARM's upcoming IPO has investors hoping it can kickstart the IPO market following restaurant train Kava, thrift shop Savers Value Village, and beauty platform Oddity Tech, which all went public in the past couple months. If ARM goes well, could Instacart and a slew of other buzzy tech names be next? Our intrepid markets reporter Bob Bassani says don't be so sure about that. Bob, why not? What are you hearing? Well, so th this announcement that ARM would begin the roadshow for its IPO it has these IPO watchers down here. They're giddy with hopes that the two-year IPO drought is slowly coming to an end. Here's the problem particularly for tech unicorns that might be coming to an end. Unfortunately, several factors, I think, may prevent an IPO liftoff for the fall. First, the most important factor for a strong IPO market is an up market and stable interest rates. The market gyrations this month and rising rates present a real problem for future IPOs. Let's just say market conditions are not quite ready for liftoff. Second, what gets IPO investors really excited are the tech unicorns. These are relatively early stage companies with high valuations, traditionally over a billion dollars, that are disrupting their industries. The problem is that there's not much similarity between ARM and tech unicorns like Instagram. The card or Stripe, for example. Arm's an older, much more mature company. It's more like Kenview, the recent Johnson & Johnson healthcare spinoff, than a tech unicorn. Then there's the valuation issue. This may be the big problem. Arm is said to be valued near $60 billion, but the final valuation could be much lower. Other tech unicorns like Stripe have recently seen much lower funding rounds. Now, this may not open the floodgates, but there's a long list of potential IPO candidates out there. Some of them have been around for a long time, including Instacart and Reddit and Stripe and Fanatics. Birkenstock, the shoe manufacturer and car sharing firm Toro as well, Shine, of course, China fast food retailer. Arm may not be the kind of tech unicorn that really excites the stock market, but it's really big. And the fact that it's coming really soon is going to set the tone. So that means the pricing is really important. And Kelly, what that means is they have to price it so it doesn't flop. And let me explain what a flop is. A flop is not Oh, we thought it was worth $60 billion and now we're going to price it or at $50 billion or the valuation. That's not a flop. A flop would be we price it at 20 it opens at 23 and it closes at 18 that day, or three weeks later, it's 15 That's a flop. Price at 23 weeks later, 15 The retail market will determine whether it's successful. So that's why this is important. They've got to get the price right, and it's got to hold and not be sold off in the first few days. Kelly? Yeah, so better for them to be conservative. And I like your point, too, that, l listen, this is more telling us about SoftBank's need to sell or to That's raise right. capital to reinvest for other reasons than it is, you know, someone who thinks, hey, the retail public might be really hot on the stock right now. I'm not sure how strong the interest is going to be in a company that's reporting declining financials. Look what happened, though, to Kenview. There was a very, I think this is a similar situation, very stable. Everyone knows the metrics on Kenview. Everybody's got a good sense of the metrics on ARM as well. And yes, I think that's going to be a problem with the, with the numbers you were talking about. That's why I think the valuation may well be lower on that. But again, wouldn't it be, would it not be a, a great thing if the average investors, CNBC investors, bought in at a lower price and the yes. stock rose rather than what we've seen in the last few years where they, they price them high and then months later, 
the IPO prices is gone. The prices are much lower. Let's let's price them lower and let's let the viewers and our investors get in on the deal and maybe get it rise in the next few months. Vehemently agree, Bob. Uh, preach. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> okay. And we'll see how it goes. Our Bob Bassani reporting today from the New York Stock Exchange. Still to come, Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo set to become the fifth high level U.S. official and third cabinet member visit China just this summer. Do all the trips signal a major strategy shift from the Biden administration? We'll try to unpack what it means for business and trade between the two superpowers. Plus, New York City is on the way to rezoning part of midtown Manhattan to deal with the housing crisis. But will the cost of office conversions keep real estate giants at bay? We'll ask the head of one firm handling multi-billion dollar deals in the space. And as we go to break, here's a broad look at your markets. We're watching the S&P, which is up more than 1% today, first time in a couple of months. Dow's up half a percent. NASDAQ up one and a half percent. NVIDIA, by the way, is about a sixth of the total point gains we've seen there so far this year. So what happens tonight will have huge implications. The 10-year yield back to 420. We're back after this. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones, from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome back to The Exchange. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo traveling to China next week for talks with senior government officials. It's the latest in a series of high-level visits there and comes at a tense time as both countries try to repair relations. It also comes at a vulnerable time for China as they deal with economic pain. And that is crucial, one of my next guests says. The U.S. needs to proceed with caution. Joining me now, David Dollar, a senior fellow in the John L. Thornton China Center at Brookings. And Stefan Selig is former Undersecretary of Commerce for International Trade. Welcome to you both. David, are these your words to proceed with caution? Well, I definitely think we should proceed with caution. Uh, there are some opportunities to stabilize U.S.-China relations, and I respect the Biden administration is sending a range of cabinet officials to do that. Uh, we don't want re- relations to spiral downward, uh, but we shouldn't have very high expectations. Uh, there hasn't been the preparatory work you would need to really get any new trade agreement. Uh, Commerce Department took 27 firms off a list that prevents firms from buying from U.S. suppliers. So that was a small goodwill gesture. And maybe this trip will lead to more small goodwill gestures. But I I wouldn't expect any big breakthroughs. Why do we need small goodwill gestures, David? Well, I think the main thing at this point is to prevent a downward spiral. The official uh, statements from the administration basically lay out this idea of a small yard with a high fence We want to identify technologies that have military applications. We don't want them to diffuse to China. So the high fence means serious controls of exports and investment. But we say we're going to keep that yard small. 
And frankly, a lot of our allies have much more economic exchange with China than we do. So our allies like this idea that we're going to not pursue decoupling, but have this small yard with a high fence. And I would say until recently, it did seem like we were creating a very big yard of technologies and products that we were restricting. And so now the administration is really following through. Uh, and I think that that's sensible because it was a good strategy and it's what our allies are looking for. So, Stefan, I'd be curious as well for your perspective on this as someone who made you know, many trips to China. Uh, kind of, what do you think this, the Commerce Secretary's trip is going to be all about? Or what's the significance for the business community? Well, well look, um, Kelly, I think it's about building relationships that, um, as David pointed out, don't currently exist. Um, in my experience, um, success came from building those relationships that were fundamentally underpinned by trust and respect and looking for win-win opportunities that were good for both sides. And frankly, this economic and commercial relationship between the United States and China is vital to both of our interests. So we both wanted to succeed. Um, but, you know, in, the, in D.C. at the moment, there has been this um, gang tackling of China. There's this bipartisan view um, about getting tough with China. But tough doesn't always mean smart. And we've sent a bit of a muddled message, as I think David is suggesting. And I think they need to understand that this is not about um, containing their development or the rise of their economy, but rather about protecting our national security interests and creating a level playing field for our companies and our investors. Do you think we should be distrustful of their intentions? And I'm speaking of the, the Chinese Communist Party here, Stefan. Well, look, they're not our friends, right? But, you know, fierce competitors um, also need to cooperate where we have shared interests. And we have plenty of shared interests. Um, and that, I think, is what this is about. It is not about, you know, kumbaya moments, but it's about creating a dynamic and an environment where we are able to cooperate um, in the future. So do you think, David, that the administration is trying to signal that they've maybe maybe implicitly and just to the business community, that they're backing off a little bit and they don't want, as you said a moment ago, they don't really want a decoupling from China. You know, they, maybe they want Starbucks to have locations there and they want companies to have, you know, is that what they want or they don't want it? <laughs> what is the message here? Well, it's easy to get confused because we have heard different things from different members of the administration over time. But I think more recently, you've got a pretty consistent message uh, that this administration does want there to be business ties between the U.S. and China. I think an important part of Secretary Raimondo's trip will be meeting the U.S. business community. And I'm pretty sure, you know, they're going to be pushing this idea that we really need to uh, keep this, these restrictions on exports and investment. We should really keep them narrowly tailored because there are a lot of good business opportunities for American firms in China. And she'll, she'll be interested in, you know, what their specific complaints are uh, and is there some traction with the Chinese government to make progress on, on issues that we've been discussing for a long time? Yeah, and of course, we're all curious to watch the real politic of it. How is she received? How much of an audience? How does the visit go over? David Dollar, Stefan Seelig, thank you both so much for joining us today. We appreciate it. Thank you, it. Kelly. Sticking with China, its recent series of underwhelming economic reports have investors worried not just about growth there, but in the rest of the world as well. Here to discuss that, Andres Garcia Amaya is the founder and CEO of Zoe Financial, and Nathan Sheets is chief economist at Citigroup. Great to have you both here. Nathan, let me just start with you. You recently made some changes to your GDP forecast, if I'm not mistaken. How do things look uh, globally? Are we the only house in town at this point? 
our sense is that uh, the United States continues to look pretty resilient. And uh, we've maintained a call for a first-half recession in the United States. But let me tell you, we're feeling uh, increasingly anxious about that call as the economy continues to show momentum and the consumer looks pretty strong. Uh, but in contrast, when we look abroad, we're seeing a fair amount of weakness in uh, two other major economies. And it's specifically in China, the consumer is looking very weak. Uh, after the reopening in early uh, 2023, early this year, the consumer spent for a few months, but since then, confidence and spending has fallen off. And similarly, the euro area, and specifically Germany, is looking very weak, because it was reinforced this morning with some of the PMI data, uh, where it looks like manufacturing, which has been soft, is now starting to drag down services, which have been somewhat stronger. So a desynchronized global outlook is what we think we're seeing at the moment. Yeah, not to go off on a Germany tangent, but, you know, I read about the trains being way behind schedule and it's causing, you know, and the, the are they the new sick man of Europe? I mean, it's quite a change of fortune from the past 15 years. Andres, I'll ask you to just kind of go back to the broader investing implications, especially for the U.S. investor. What are they? Yeah, so it's interesting because if you look at U.S. economy exposure to China, it is different to the S&P 500's exposure to China, right? Uh, U.S. GDP exports account only for roughly 10% of GDP, but 30% of S&P 500 revenues come from abroad, and roughly one-third of those come from China, right? So a slower Chinese consumer, a slower Chinese economy could actually have a uh, outsized impact on the S&P 500 versus an outsized impact to the U.S. economy. Yeah. And so if that's true for the S&P 500, Andres, what would your advice be to investors who are looking and saying, listen, if I'd missed the market this year, I, you know, what what do I do now? Yeah, I, I, one, I would echo that we can't ignore the fact that the U.S. economy has been really resilient to a rising rate environment and to a slowing global economy. And I think that's one of the reasons we've seen uh, the way the market act the way that it is, right? Double digit returns this year. So you have to look at every factor here, not just, yes, China is slowing down, but on the upside, the U.S. economy has been very uh, uh, resilient. When it comes to the U.S. investor, I think the question now is, where is that incremental dollar going? Not just within stocks, but versus a bond or versus a savings account. And that's one of the areas that I feel a little bit more skeptical that we could go back to all-time highs in the stock market uh, this year, considering now uh, a savings account gives you more than 5% and a 10-year treasury bond gives you more than 4%. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah I'm, I'm singing from your hymnal, uh, Andre, so to speak. Nathan, I just want to mention uh, as well, we had some significant revisions lately to the U.S. data. Yes, it's robust, but a little bit less so on the employment front, even prompting Mark Zandi, our, our friend and colleague, to say that the Fed, now that we you look at the jobs data, we're only, we've gone from a pace of hiring about 300,000 jobs a month through March, less than 200,000 jobs a month since then, actually. He says it's strong but slowing, and this is the key part, and the rate hikes. You agree with that? Yeah, I think that's broadly, broadly correct, that uh, we're seeing the labor market moderate, uh, the pace of job growth that we're seeing is much softer than, say, a year ago. But relative to pre-pandemic, still very, very solid readings. 
And uh, I think the Fed is looking for uh, more slack in the labor market and uh, more evidence that it's uh, it's hikes are really getting traction on wages and services inflation. And quite frankly, I think that the resilience we're seeing is still not quite consistent with where the Fed ultimately wants to arrive. All right. And we'll hear a lot more uh, next couple of days, Jackson Hole and so forth. Andres Garcia Amaya and Nathan Sheets, thank you both. We appreciate it. Coming up, the latest developments around the Hollywood strike and why it's looking more unlikely we'll see a resolution before the fall. The exchange is back after this. Dow's up 220. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to The Exchange. I'm Tyler Matheson with your CNBC News update. Russian state media reports that a small business jet crashed in flight from Moscow to St. Petersburg today. According to the Associated Press, officials say all 10 people on board were killed and that Wagner mercenary chief Yevgeny Prigozhin was on the passenger list. It is not clear whether he was on board. NBC News has not independently confirmed the details. But it is possible that Yevgeny Prigozhin, the man who made a move against the Kremlin, may have perished in a private jet crash. The infamous Fire Festival relaunched and the first round of tickets are already sold out. Founder Billy McFarland has been released from jail after serving time for fraud and is bringing the festival back. No details or lineup have been released, but the location is set as, quote, the Caribbean. It's a pretty big place. The Bahamas Ministry of Tourism said last year that the government will not approve any event associated with Mr. McFarland. And Starbucks is adding a third coffee drink to its fall menu lineup in a shocking twist. It involves pumpkin spice. Can you believe it? The iced pumpkin cream chai latte joins the pumpkin cream cold brew in the popular pumpkin spice latte. Starbucks is adding cold drink options despite the season. Ice beverages accounted for more than three-quarters of drink sales last fall. Pumpkin spice all around, Kelly. They know what people like. Tyler, thank you very much. I'll see you next hour. I appreciate it. Mm. Coming up, goodbye high rollers, hello strollers. Fewer bankers and bids, more parents and kids. Think less headhunting and more home dwelling. From wearing out suits to putting down roots, all of this could be in store for Midtown Manhattan down the road. We'll speak with one private lender about New York City's plan to address the housing crisis. This is the Highway to the Rezone next. Welcome back to The Exchange. Charles Schwab cutting jobs and downsizing its real estate footprint in an effort to save costs. They aren't the only ones. According to The Wall Street Journal, office leases are increasing, but the square footage is declining as companies plan for long-term hybrid work models. And that means more vacant office space across the country. In response, New York City lawmakers are taking action, recently announcing plans to convert vacant office buildings into residential apartments to boost affordable housing options. But my next guest knows firsthand some of the challenges involved in doing this. Joining me is Ron Eliasap, the CEO of the Northwind Group, and they've done more than $2 billion worth of debt and equity investments in New York since 2008. Ron, welcome back, first of all. 
Thank you for having me, Kelly. Secondly, and it, it's a reminder that these things have to be rezoned. You can't just decide as a developer to make this conversion. Um, how big a deal is this rezoning? How much flurry of activity do you think it will unleash? Well, it's a great first step in the right direction. I mean, we all know that vacancies are very high, especially in this location when they, where they rezone, which is Midtown South or Garment District. Uh, a lot of B-class office buildings are with high vacancies. So it's a good first step. You, you could have uh, made these um, adjustments before and, and um, conversion before, but this uh, took a, a much wider step to allow a much more wider variety of office buildings to mm. be converted. Um, it will create at a maximum 20,000 uh, apartments in okay. that area, which is a, a nice start. And that the attraction here is kind of twofold. Number one, you don't want giant towers sitting vacant. You don't want any office buildings really sitting vacant and decaying. That's never you know, a good idea for a city. But number two, we just learned that Manhattan rents are at an all-time high. Um, so they're trying to kind of solve both of those challenges, I guess. But how attractive is this for developers to get involved? It's attractive, but not enough. It's a very costly project to convert an office building to resi. There's a lot of unforeseen conditions once you start stripping away the walls. And also, not every office building can be converted. Sometimes the floor plates are too deep or too wide. There's not enough air and light. So you, the rezoning is a good step, but you also need to provide tax incentives for these projects to be actually viable. And that has not happened yet. So I, I don't see that we're going to see a major flurry of conversion start. We see, we see, we've seen a few. There's about 6 million square feet being converted right now in Manhattan. That's not enough. You have about 80 million square feet vacant in the city. Boston, if I'm not mistaken, is doing something more significant in terms of tax incentives where I'm going to just spitball it, but maybe you get to save half on taxes for the next 20 years or something, something really big like that. So you think that additional step is needed if we want to do a lot it, more conversions? It's, a, it's, a, it's not needed. It's a must-have. So there were programs in place, 421G, which is an equivalent to 421A, which basically says if you convert to resi, as long as you provide a certain percentage of affordable housing, 20% is, is the most common number, then we'll give you a, a tax break on your property tax for a certain duration of years to incentivize you to do the conversion. It was existing. It, it's not existing now. It has to be brought back to allow for this to happen. Same thing with multifamily ground-up construction in New York City. You need the 421A tax abatement program to be back uh, in order to incentivize developers to build. You, you were talking about rents. Uh, studio rents, two years ago, average studio rent was about 2300 2400 a month. It's now up to 3200 a month. Wow, it's jumped over th about $1,000 in two years. Yep. Wow. And, and salaries are not up at that same pace. So there means there's not only just a housing crisis in New York City, there's also an affordability crisis. Um, One-bedroom rents are up from 3200 to over 4200 Those are big numbers. And when you look at the population growth in the next five to seven years, the city will grow from about 8.8 .8 million to over 9.1 million, adding a lot of need for housing. So even as a developer, you agree the rents are too dang high, uh, but the, maybe we need some policy changes to accelerate the, the developer's willingness to jump in and, and get involved with this. And you know in New York City better than anybody. Do you ever look uh, outside the city or is it just too Byzantine and complex to try to have you know, projects going in multiple different venues at the same we're, time? We're financing projects in, in, in major gateway cities. So New York is our main hub, about 70% of our activity, but we're doing a loan right now in Philadelphia. 
We're doing a loan in Boston. We've done a loan in Houston, in Miami. But New York is definitely our number one favorite place because of the supply constraints. So actually, we choose to lend on residential in New York because it's a supply constraint market, which means pricing remain stable or actually go up. Yeah, no. So in a way, you kind of need it to be good, but not too good for some of these new conversions. Final question. We were actually talking about how much uh, the financial system kind of capital markets have held up. You know, you talked about the capital availability. You're still doing deals. You're still financing projects. And some even think this is why the Fed needs to hike more than it has, because, you know, the financial system has just proven so solid these days. Would you add any caution to that? I mean, do you, do you yes. see things slowing in maybe the next 6, 9, 12 months' time? It's, it's very deceiving. It already slowed. When you look at the senior capital stack in, in, in real estate financing right now, there's actually a shortage on the senior side. Banks have pulled back, uh, uh, and activity actually went down for lending. Uh, private debt funds like ours have stepped in. So we're doing more activity than we've done last year. Uh, so we're kind of filling in the gap for, for the banks. But there's actually sort of a credit crunch on the senior part of the first mortgage side. Hmm. So a lot of debt shops use financing to provide their leverage. They take leverage from a bank. That's hard to come by. Getting A notes from, from other banks is tougher to come so by. So what's the impact of that credit crunch going to be? There, it's, it, you already see it. There's less activity. Activity in the marketplace, I mean, deals happening is, is about half than what it was a year ago. Wow. And a year ago, about 70% of the activity of the financing was done by banks and CMBS. Now it's about, and 30% from private lenders, now it's, it's the opposite. About 70% of the financing is given by private lenders and maybe 30% from banks and CMBS. That's fascinating. Ron, thanks for updating us and talking about some of the challenges. We appreciate it today. Thank you. Ron Eliasip joining us from Northwind. Still ahead, coming to TV this fall, there might not be much, or maybe a bunch of reality shows. The latest meeting between Hollywood's striking writers and the studios turning sour. The potential impact on the key programming season next. And as we head to break, here's a look at the sector heat map of the S&P 500. Communication services and tech leading the way. Energy, the only group in the red with WTI below $80 a barrel, but the S&P hanging on to a 1.2% gain right now. Dow's near session highs up to 24. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Exchange. It's now day 114 of the Hollywood writer's strike. And as negotiations drag on, the alliance of studios, including CNBC's sister company Universal, revealed the details of their latest proposal to the WGA, which includes a wage increase, but the striking writers aren't buying it. Julia Borston joins us now with the latest. I want to hear all the details of this one, Julia, and what it could mean for the fall TV lineup or lack thereof. Well, the ship has sailed for the fall TV season. We should expect lots of reality TV and sports rather than new scripted shows. And now, as picketing continues, the question is whether resolution can come quick enough for production to restart in time for new shows to be ready by early next year. And whether studios will be pushing big fall films such as Dune Part 2 amid concerns that those films will suffer from the lack of promotion from actors who are also out on strike. Now, here's the latest. Last night, the WGA met with the AMPTP's president, as well as Disney CEO Bob Iger, Warner Brothers Discovery's David Zaslav, Universal's Donna Langley, and Netflix's Ted Sarandos. When those talks did not go well, the AMPTP released its latest proposal, effectively appealing to writers to put pressure on leadership to accept their offer. The offer includes what the studios say is the highest wage increase in more than three decades, quote, landmark protections against AI, and increased transparency around streaming data. 
The WGA criticizing the offer and writing to their members, quote, this was not a meeting to make a deal. This was a meeting to get us to cave. So now we're going to have to see what gets them back to the negotiating table. Kelly, I was hearing a lot of optimism about the talks that were going on last week. So now it seems slightly less optimistic. For sure. Now, the wage, I thought I saw something like it was 13 or 14 percent over a couple of years. It didn't sound like anything that impressive next to what we hear, you know, the Teamsters agreeing, you know, for UPS on the one hand and the, and the pilots and everything. So I don't know if it's all apples to apples. It's not apples to apples. Look, there are the wage increases. There's also better compensation around streaming. So much streaming compensation had been structured as flat fee upfront payments effectively. And what writers are saying is that they want to be paid if their show or their film is successful and if something is watched on Netflix or Amazon Prime Video over and over and over, they want to make sure that they get paid commensurate with that. So that's a key piece of this. So I would say the streaming compensation overall pay increases, especially in light of inflation. And then, of course, this question of AI protections. Those are really the three key issues. And it sounds like there's been some progress made, but not enough for the WGA just yet. Right. And how much longer now? I mean, if this is kind of going to go to the next round, I mean, what are we talking in terms of timeline? Yeah, I mean, one thing I'm hearing a lot about is that Labor Day is seen as a deadline in the mind of a lot of the studios um, in terms of the decisions that they're going to have to make about the big fall films. It's expected that the writers will make a deal before the actors, but if they can make a deal with the Writers Guild, then they could bring some similar proposals to the Actors Guild and then hopefully get that resolved in time to have actors out there promoting their films on the red carpet by, say, November or December, which is, of course, the essential holiday movie season. If the studios think we don't have a deal with the writers by around Labor Day, then they're going to have to make decisions about whether they push these big-budget fall films to next year, because if they are like if they figure, hey, we don't have the act, the writers yet, we're not going to be able to get the actors in time to do this promotion. They have to decide if it's better off to release the films without the actors help or to to wait and, until next year when they might have that help. So a lot is going to be decided around that labor Labor Day time. Wow. Frame. And that's only a, it's barely a week away. You know, it's it's the clock is absolutely ticking. Julia, thanks so much. We appreciate it. Our Julia Borson reporting. Coming up, shares of Lazy Boy down today despite a strong quarter after CEO Melinda Whittington warned of a tough macro environment ahead on the earnings call. She joins us for an exchange exclusive interview next. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back to The Exchange. Shares of Lazy Boy pretty much erasing their declines today after the company reported that sales were down 20 percent last quarter due to industry challenges. The furniture maker did, however, beat on both the top and bottom line, with earnings topping estimates by seven cents and retail same-store sales climbing 2 percent on the year. Joining me now to discuss is Lazy Boy's president and CEO, Melinda Whittington. Melinda, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So we uh, spoke with uh, with a door maker yesterday uh, who said that, listen, it's just this is a, a little bit of a tough part of the uh, of the cycle right now, you know, kind of post pandemic. Um, describe for us overall how business is going this year compared with, you know, a couple of years ago. Yeah, the last three years for furniture, there's certainly been a lot of disruption. Uh, we had, you know, a Consumers were, were home, they were ordering a lot, and then there was just significant supply chain disruption that slowed down production to meet that demand. So of our $2.3 billion of sales last year, and, and our year just finished at the end of April, um, so that $2.3 billion, $300 million of last year's sales were actually just servicing pandemic-related um, backlog. Wow. So if we kind of then look at 
Whereas the consumer today, now that we've caught up on that backlog, our consumer right now is fairly stable across the industry with, with where we were last year and as that dis disruption has settled out. Um, you know, across furniture, the furniture industry for the, the quarter ended July, which is how we look at it, um, it the, the consumer's down about across furniture and furnished things about 6%. Hmm. Our consumer, though, is doing much better than that. And we're pleased with that. And I believe that's the, the strength of our execution and our brand name in a really fragmented market. Uh, we just delivered... 8% um, in a growth in our retail business. We're both a manufacturer and a retailer. And even within that 8%, of course, that's new stores and acquisitions, but 2% of that was same store growth. So we are seeing the consumer reacting right. um, when you're when you're still speaking with them. Then I hear, you know, from some of our our younger producers, Joy Bird is a, is a popular brand, a little bit more apartment facing, that kind of thing. Um, we heard from Macy's and Foot Locker that in July, June, July timeframe, the consumers started to weaken a little bit. Is that unique to those companies or did you pick up on that as well? No, we really didn't see that. We're actually seeing sequential strengthening. I think the last, call it year and a half, furniture broadly has been somewhat um, subdued. What we've seen is the consumer go back to sort of normal seasonality. And so summer are slow months, but we've actually seen sequential strengthening in our own retail since the back half of our last fiscal and through our May, June, July quarter, and even into early August as we start. So we're seeing broadly, you know, stabilized and slightly positive trends. Sure. You know, and, and that's in a way it's good to hear I me. Mean, maybe it speaks to the challenges those other segments of retail are having, but that it's maybe not something happening with the consumer more broadly. So we talked a little bit about kind of inflation or pricing. Is that out of your pipeline now? In other words, when we start talking about whether sales are going to be up, you know, three, five, whatever the number is, as you you kind of are more hopeful about the holidays. How much of that is pricing? How much of that is volume? Yeah, very. The pricing is pretty stable at this point. So, you know, over the last couple of years, the, the furniture industry saw some pretty dramatic price increases based on input costs, right? Uh, 25, 30, even 40 percent. Mm -hmm. The majority of that has held, but it's been well over a year since we've taken any type of really significant pricing action. So you're really looking at, again, more stable trends and more volume related as we go forward. Then my, I guess my last follow-up question to that would be price cuts. You know, people are starting to notice it at the price leaders like a Walmart, um, that they're really taking advantage and saying, we can now eat into this a little bit, maybe win the consumer um, and not have to do too much on, on margins for the reasons that you mentioned. Yeah, across our industry, and certainly for us, the more than half of that pricing is really held up. Now, it varies a bit, um, you know, by the consumer base. Our Lazy Boy consumer and even our Joybird consumer tends to be a bit of an upper middle income consumer, and so maybe a little less price sensitive. So we've seen some activity within within furniture broadly. Um, it's maybe a little bit, uh, you know, to a little more price sensitive consumer. Yeah. But overall, we're not seeing, you know, dramatic actions taken. Now, we're always we're always keeping an eye on that. Of course. Um, but, you know, we, we believe, uh, you know, the consumer is going to pay for the brand, the trust and the quality. Yeah. Well, every time I think I'd like to settle into a lazy boy right about now, it always sounds pretty good. Melinda, we can set you up with one of no, those. <laughs> no, no. Uh, I'd hate to eat into your bottom line. No. Melinda Whittington, thank you so much for joining us today. We hope to check back in soon. Thanks. And that Appreciate does it for us here on The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, 
same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. 